So tonight's reading, 1 Samuel, chapter 5, on page 275 of your Bibles. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of God of, of the God of Israel round to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. So there we are. Uh, is quick off the blocks and uh, others will follow. Uh, Natalie has got a treat waiting for them. Now we get to uh, look at that uh, chapter, but as we come to it, let's ask uh, a simple question. Have you ever heard this before? Will you ever learn? Yeah. Well, my guess is that every single person in this church has heard that question being asked of them. In fact, every single person in the world, in some, some way or another, has had a question like that put to them at some point. For me... It was the constant uh, uh, refrain uh, of my mum uh, as I grew up, uh, right through uh, the time we were together. Uh, she'd tell me one thing, I'd do another, I'd come a cropper, and she would say, will you ever learn? She said that to me when I was young and playing with snakes. Uh, she said that to me when I was older and playing with motorbikes, which actually hurt more than the snakes. And now she doesn't say that anymore because she doesn't see the mistakes, but well, my wife does. <laughs> and every Tuesday uh, after I 
play squash on Monday and hobble. She says to me, will you ever learn? <laughs> but actually, I think I ask myself that question more than anybody else because I see how often, more than anybody else, how I make the mistakes and don't learn fast enough. And the question for me, when will I ever learn? And I could get personal and ask you to give me examples of uh, when you might think that about you. But we won't get personal because it's always more comfortable, isn't it, to pick on someone else. And so why don't we go and learn from the slowest learners of all, the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Anyway, we're not learning about them because we want to feel a bit of comfort ourselves because there's always someone worse off. No, we want to learn from them because we want to be wiser by the time we finish our study tonight. And it's important to get wise in this one area because the one area of slow learning the Philistines seem to specialize in is slow learning about God, which is the worst area to go slow on. So, God teaches slow learners in this chapter, and he does it in two ways. He does it through a statue, and he does it through suffering. First, we'll go to the statue. The statue is the statue of Dagon, and you read about that uh, right at the very beginning of the chapter. And the ark of God is brought into the temple of uh, Dagon, and uh, obviously... Uh, lower than Dagon in the way they uh, looked at things. Now, in case you weren't here last week, uh, the uh, uh, ark was a three and a half foot by two and a half foot <coughs> wide and two and a half feet high uh, gold-plated box, and uh, in it were mementos of God's power, the Ten Commandments, Aaron's walking stick that budded and a jar of the manna that they had given to them daily when they were walking through the wilderness. Now that inventory of what was in the box is actually there in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4 if you want to uh, see it listed. And what had happened was in chapter 4, the chapter we looked at last week, the Israelites, the people of God in the Old Testament, had taken the ark onto a battlefield as a good luck charm to help them win a battle against the Philistines. Except the plan backfired because God won't be used in that way and he will kill those who try to use him in that way even if they are his own people. Perhaps especially if they are his own people and ought to know better. So we know that's the reason why they lost We've read uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 3, where it was the Lord that brought defeat on them. We know it was all his doing, but the Philistines didn't. They thought that they were the ones who were the strong ones. Their God was the one who had given them victory. And so therefore you can see their confidence. They're driving the show. If you look at verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, you can see that they are the subject of every sentence. The, these are the action people. 
after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon. See, it's all of them. And as far as the Philistines were concerned, the god Dagon uh, was strong, and he had beaten the god of Israel. And therefore, the god of Israel was effectively going to be put into the trophy cabinet in his temple. And so they uh, thought about that, and they thought that uh, this god of Israel was uh, too weak. You could put him wherever you wanted to. It didn't really matter. It didn't affect life. You could, uh, if you want to stick him there, you go and stick him there, and everything will be fine. Well, it will be, for the first two verses, for a very short time. But then you get to verse 3, and there's a mishap. Because poor old Dagon, if you watch the picture, takes a tumble. In fact, actually, if you look at verse 3, it's more than that. It's not just that he fell, but it's almost like he's been specially arranged as if he's worshipping the God of Israel. It's like Dagon's statue is trying to tell them something. Guys, watch me. This is how you ought to be with this God. Now, that's the point that he wants to make to them. They should have realized that there was a slight danger attached to taking the ark into Dagon's temple because it is called the ark of God. And if you knew anything about this God, there'd be a flashing light in your mind thinking this is a risk. And they go in the morning and they find that Dagon is uh, on his face. Now, you can't miss the humor, can, can you? Uh, the people of Dagon have got to help poor old Dagon back onto his feet again. But they might as well have left him there because the next day they go in and he's in the same position again, only this time not all in one piece. He is broken up and in bits. And only the English version uh, tells us. Well, the English version tells us how it is. At the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon falling on his face before the ark. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Heads and hands were the symbol of power. So those had been taken away from him. But the Hebrew is always a bit more subtle. It tells us just that little bit more. It tells us literally only Dagon was left to him. Only that bit of Dagon was there that was still recognizably Dagon, but it was left to him in the sense that someone else made the decision about which bits of Dagon should stay and which bits of Dagon should come off. It's been left to him. It's someone else's decision. Someone else is in control. And someone else has turned Dagon into a Humpty Dumpty God. Know what happened to Humpty Dumpty, don't you? Humpty Dumpty sat in a wall, and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Now, if you're in learning mode, I think there's a couple of things we ought to pick up on straight away. First, is this idea that Christians can have in their choruses and in their minds, even if they're not singing, that God is somehow helpless. God has no hands but mine to do his work. 
Therefore, if something's going to happen, you are going to have to do it because God needs you on his team to get things done. Friends, I think Dagon would want to turn us away from that because that's Dagon. He's the one who hasn't got hands. God is able to fend for himself when there are no hands because he has a, a, a part of his own. We need to turn away from this idea that somehow God needs us in any way whatsoever. Ah, Dagon's people need to help Dagon. God's people don't need to help him. But the second thing that we need to notice, and this is even more important, and that is God is kind. Have you noticed so far, the only casualty is Dagon. Can you see that? No one's been hurt so far. Only the statue. And that's the kindness of God. To use a statue to teach the Philistines that he is God and not Dagon. And it's that statue that God uses tonight to teach us that actually every other God is futile. We don't need a new fresh word from God every time we come together because essentially we can use the same statue that the Philistines learnt from to learn the same lesson that the Philistines did. We don't need any new information. We just simply learn the same lesson the Philistines did the same way from the same idol. And what that idol helps us to do is to understand that that's what it's like for every single God there is in the universe. You look at uh, Dagon and uh, you look at the religions of the world which are all a different kind of Dagon, aren't they, ultimately? And you realize you need to look at them again. Dagon will tell you, don't look at me. I'm just falling on my face in front of the one you should be looking at. But I'm not just saying this is a Dagon lesson for those who believe in Dagon religions. I'm saying this is a Dagon lesson for those people who say that there is no God at all. Because actually, frankly... That's never entirely true because when people say there's no God and they don't look at the God of uh, Israel, the God of the Bible, the God of uh, uh, the New Testament as well, what happens is they elevate, they promote whatever they're living for to effectively Dagon status. It might be different things. It might be the worship of their children. That's what they live for. Maybe the priority of their business. That's what they live for. Or it may be uh, the joy of a hobby. That's what they live for. I went and spoke to a lady yesterday who is um, wonderfully involved in the road cycling uh, hobby of her two sons. A wonderful team. They do everything together. They go cycling morning, noon, and night, it seems. And she's out there cycling with them. Now that's a great, a, a wonderfully committed mum. But there's no doubt what she's living for. When you look at what those children are living for. That's what they spend all their time doing. So a Dagon 
is really whatever it is that makes you wake up in the morning to do, to get excited about what your purpose of life is. Or, to put it a different way, perhaps, the one thing that if it was taken away from your life, your life would fall apart and have no meaning whatsoever. That is your day gone. And what the Bible tells us is that uh, that Dagon is going to leave you very disappointed one day. Take the statue's broken bits and realize there is a God who is greater. And let him feel the scene. So the Philistines had a statue to learn from. Sadly, they didn't. And so therefore we go on to lesson number two, which is where they learn from suffering instead. Now, I just wanted to see again and again as we go through the Bible how brilliant the Bible is in drawing out the details to show a contrast between the Dagon God and the real God. You remember that in verse 4, the Dagon God has no hands anymore. But you look at verse 6 and you can see that the living God has a very effective hand. And that hand is heavy on those who are slow learners about him. And people have guessed that uh, the suffering that uh, uh, has gone on in this uh, chapter uh, could be compared to the Dubonic Plague, which devastated uh, England. Uh, if you read about it, it was uh, spread by rats, and uh, the symptoms were tumors. And when you look at the next chapter, chapter 6, and you see the ark being returned to the people of Israel, they put into it golden rats and tumors in chapter 6, verse 11, uh, which may be therefore an indicator that that was actually what was plaguing them too. But one thing is sure, whatever the cause is, the one thing is absolutely sure is that there was nothing that they could do to stop the plague. This God was unstoppable. Ah, but he is movable. And so that's what they decide to do. Let's send him somewhere else. And so they have what we might say in England today, a cobra meeting, um, where they gather the rulers of the Philistines. There were five lords of the Philistines, one from each of their big cities. Ashdod was one of them. And they have a meeting and decide to move the ark to Gath. Now, who knows what the Lord of Gath thought about that particular idea. But my guess is he wouldn't have really been able to put it to the vote if there were four other lords who didn't want their cities plagued the way that Ashdod was. So to Gath it goes. But you might just notice, as we are traveling along with the ark, and as we are moving through this chapter, that the ark is beginning to accumulate a bit more respect as time goes on. So in verse 1, it's first the ark of God, simply that. But now you look at verse 3, and they start calling it the ark of the Lord. That's much nearer Israel's view of him. They called him Lord. And after the plague really gets moving, you notice how that then increases 
to a much greater formality. They call it the Ark of the God of Israel. In verse 7, the Ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us. And in verse 8, twice, what shall we do with the Ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the Ark of the God of Israel be moved to Gath. And again in verse 11, it's the ark of the God of Israel that needs to be sent home. But God has a way of uh, developing his own reputation, and he's doing that now. But it doesn't take Gath too long to realize they need to get rid of it too. And this time they don't bother to call a cobra meeting, they don't ask the rulers, they just send it down the road to Ekron. And Ekron are in no doubt whatsoever that the God of Israel doesn't change from one city to the next. And so when the ark comes into the city of Ekron, they realize that they are in deep trouble along with everybody else. The same thing will happen all over again. And so this time, very interesting in verse 11, uh, they, don't, uh, they call the rulers of, of, of uh, the Philistines together, but only to tell them what to do with this uh, wretched ark as far as they were concerned. Send it back to its own place or we'll all die, in verse 11, seems to be their message. Now look, there would have been fewer graves in Israel if they made that decision way back in verse 3, if they'd learned from the statue. There would have been far less suffering. But now that suffering has brought them to realize the greatness of God in a way that their statue didn't. And now that lesson has been learned. Now doesn't that give us an insight into the way that it's so easy not to be smart about the fact that God really, really is God. They just don't learn it, do they? In fact, it's staggering how in verse 7, they still refer to their uh, God, Dagon, as their God. Uh, the ark of the God of Israel mustn't stay with us because his heavy on, hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, who's still our God. You think it might have been time for them just to say, I wonder what it might take for the God of Israel to become our God. They don't see that their old God is useless. They just don't leave him. Now, they never forget how the old God lost. Because after all, in verse 5, you can see that they uh, know the spot where he fell very well. There was probably a great dent in the threshold where uh, the whole idol uh, toppled. And now they're very carefully step over the threshold, over the hole, because they want to respect their fallen God. But he's still their God. And the chapter ends with them wanting the God of Israel just to leave them alone so that life can get back to normal again. So it will be just them and their broken God. Now, I think that speaks volumes into our world today. I wonder if you're new to Bible Christianity, uh, whether you wonder about this God. And it's been an eye-opener to you to see how this God so violently shakes people 
to show how great he is until they realize that for themselves. That might shock you, but I'll tell you this much. It's very different from the weak and pathetic non-God that many people in our country think he is. But let me tell you something else that is really worth taking home and holding on to and never forgetting for the rest of your life. And that is that if we are living for something else or someone else, God will make it his project for the rest of your life to show you that your God is useless. Now, you can be like the Philistines if you want to. There's no monopoly on sickness. You can cling to your old God, however disappointing he turns out to be. But wouldn't it be a better thing to get smart and to say, I want the God of the Bible to be my God? Because, see, if there is a real God, and if he is a real and great God, then it isn't really an option to live as if there isn't one. And to live for something else instead. God doesn't see that as an option. He sees that as competition. And we see in this chapter what he does with the competition. And he will break a statue this evening to teach you what he will do with the competition in your life. And he will go further with you if that isn't enough. He will break you as well. Isn't it wise for us to say sorry that we've lived for other things? Isn't today a good day to start with a new view of God's greatness and to realize this is what he will do with every single day gone? Uh, uh, <clears throat> parallel in your life as well. What if you're a church junkie and you're at home in services like this and you would be very quick to stand up on your feet and say, hey, I'm not into Dagon, I'm into Jesus. Really? Which Jesus? Is it the Jesus who um, uh, you can do whatever you want and you can come back to him and he'll forgive you again and again, no questions asked? Is it the Jesus who watches you sing songs in church? Really doesn't mind the priorities that you have outside. Is it the Jesus who is happy for you to talk about him in Christian company, but in no other company? In other words, is he is the Jesus who is actually quite laid back? as far as you're concerned. Or put it another way, is he the Jesus who really does nothing? Aren't you mistaking for Dagon a bit? Haven't you got Dagon with a different name? You just call him Jesus, but he is a very different Jesus to the one who, like God in chapter 4, will defeat anyone who tries to use him or like the God in chapter 5 who will break apart those who try and worship uh, anything else 
That's the Jesus of the Bible. And we need to recognize that's the Jesus and the only Jesus that calls us to follow him. Now, it is uh, an important thing, isn't it, that we ought to stress that uh, there are lots of reasons why the people of God have deep and profound and daily and numerous reasons to be grateful to Jesus. From the bottom of our hearts, we can live in deep worship and praise of him. After all, he died on the cross to show his forbearance towards slow learners like us. But the idea of that is not to keep us as slow learners, but to teach us wisdom. And we need, therefore, to understand that this Jesus is the God that is there, not just for us to love, but also for us to fear. And uh, uh, we need to obey him with deep humility. Otherwise, Jesus is Dagon even for those who go to church. But what happens if uh, you want to follow Jesus and you still suffer, not in a God-less way that others do, but you suffer perhaps even more because the godless now are the agents of your suffering. And so they make you um, miserable because they attack those uh, who follow Jesus in the same way they went for him. Now, isn't it understandable for Christians in a climate like that to say, why does God let this happen? Why does God let people think he's weak? Why does God allow his people to be pushed around everywhere? Why, do, why does God allow him to be pushed around in the process? as if it just doesn't matter. But my friends, I want to take you back to a shorter time than 1 Samuel chapter 5, to one Friday, when there were people very much in the driving seat, in the way the Philistines were in the driving seat in verses 1 and 2, and they pushed God around wherever they wanted to. They put him wherever they pleased, why they even put him that Friday on a cross. And it seemed that God was weak and helpless and allowing it to happen. But one morning, they went and had a look. And Jesus had done to death what God had done to Dagon and broken it in pieces. So yes, death still remains, recognizably death, but the power is no longer. Like Dagon, death now is a symbol of God's victory. You look at that and you say, God has won every time death uh, looks at you in the face. It is now, like Dagon and his broken statue, a symbol of God's great triumph. That's what death is. But that also means that this Jesus is not just in the past, he's in the future. 
And if you want to know what a future with Jesus is like, turn, if you like, to the end of the Bible, the very last chapter, and uh, chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 6, where you also meet a group of people that scratched their heads and wondered why is God letting bad things happen? Why does he give the impression that he is so powerless? Why does he let people do what they do? Bottom of page 1, 2, 3, 7, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Why is this like this? How long will it last for? Verse 12, over the page. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Remember the Philistines? Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They call to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can withstand it? Friends, in the kindness of God, the Philistine statue means that none of us need to get hurt. And the Philistine suffering means that none of us need to get hurt. But if we want to continue with our Dagon preoccupations, then it is worth understanding that the Lamb of God is not just like any other Lamb taken to a slaughter. Here, at the end of the world, he is the Lamb of wrath who executes slaughter. And we need to understand that if we think that God is powerless, it is only because in his kindness he gives people the opportunity to learn from the Philistines, to learn from the futility of their own idols, before the day comes when they will see what lessons, eternal lessons, suffering will teach. Don't lose heart. This God is as great as he was with the Philistines, even though you don't see his hand in quite that same way today. One day, you will. Let's pray. So I'll just show you the little picture because you want to know about... Uh, what will happen to the Dagons when we think that God does nothing?
Revelation chapter 6 tells us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you for your kindness to teach us through a statue and even to teach us through the suffering of others. Please help us to respond with deep gratitude that you would help us in such ways that you would save us where we acknowledge our own Dagon preoccupations. But yet we pray that you will also help us not just to be grateful but to respond to you with fear so that we may be wise and not foolish in the way we put other things above you. And we pray that for the glory of your name and for our good. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.